Well, good morning, church. Good morning and welcome. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you. And can I just share something that the Holy Spirit has been speaking all morning? He did in first service and he did again in second. Know this, that, that worship is one of the greatest gifts you'll ever get from God. It is, I'm say it again, it's one of the greatest gifts you'll ever get from God. When you learn to experience, to give yourself to worship, you will never turn back. You'll never want to go back. There'll never be enough worship. You know, the Bible says that it is worship that sets our mind and heart right, that without it, we can't think straight. Romans chapter 1, if you want to look that up sometime. I, I remember being a, a young man, a new believer, and and not understanding the whole singing thing. I was like, I'm here to do some study and let's just get through the singing part. And then, then God taught me that, you know, King David commanded his soul to worship. And when we learn to do the same, then we receive his greatest gift. There are people who think that the greatest part of a worship service on Sunday morning is opening the word. It's not. It's the coffee and cookies after dinner. <laughs> Dinner is the worship. And so I just want to encourage you. If you're somebody who said, you know, I'm not really a singer. <laughs> you know what? Nobody else is either. But we have learned that when we give ourselves to worship, like we sang in the song, come on, soul. You know, that's from the Psalms. And, and then we begin to experience that. So anyway, it's, it's a gift God wants to give you. It's great to see you. Um, another gift that God gives us our encouragement when we come together. And I want to ask you, though, this morning, if you would join with me in prayer. Uh, for a particular family that's usually part of our second service. They haven't been for a few weeks. And that's Russ and Julie Bosiger. Uh, some of you know them. And just yesterday, Julie uh, was placed on hospice. And uh, they're talking about days. Um, and you know, they're so full of faith. I mean, on the one hand, there's a joyful anticipation. There's a resurrection drawing near. There's a arrival at the Father's house. And and both Russ and Julie feel that and believe that. But it's also tough to say goodbye, even for, even when we know it's not forever. It's hard. And, and they're home alone this morning, not here. And I was there this week, and Russ told me with wet eyes, you know, my favorite part of the week is worship, but right now I have to take care of my wife. I said, no, this is worship. This is worship. And so can we pray together? Would you bow your heads with me? God, we, we come before you thanking you for so many answered prayers, God. Uh, the healings that we hear about. Lord, we rejoice that our sister Marcy is here this morning with a good report, cancer washed away by surgery. God, we're just grateful. We thank you. And we think this morning of, of our friends, of Russ and Julie, God, and of their home. Um, fill that place with your Holy Spirit today. Fill it with your spirit these days, God. Lift them up in a, in a peace that passes understanding. And God, we dare to pray even in a joy at graduation and homegoing. Because we trust you, because we believe in you, we know that to step through the veil <laughs> is to find out where we always belonged and where we always will belong. And we pray for your peace and your power to fill those hearts in that home. We thank you for hearing us. And we pray also this morning, Lord, for, for Children's Church down the hall. Pour your spirit out on all our teachers and leaders so faithful to serve kids. And help us in here this morning, Lord, to, to open our hearts to your word, to, to listen to you, Holy Spirit. Give us your ears to hear and your eyes to see. We pray for that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 
Hey, just a few kind of stuff to keep you aware of, uh, announcements. Uh, as we say, tomorrow night, first of all, ladies, is Sisters of Strength. That's our, our, monthly, our monthly fellowship dinner that happens uh, in the sanctuary here at 6.30 tomorrow night. Everybody's invited. It's free. Bring a friend. Uh, it's a great time together. So Sisters of Strength will be happening tomorrow night. March 3rd and 4th, not very far away, so Friday, Saturday will be the Elevate Kids Retreat uh, for 2nd to 5th graders, and then if you've got a 1st grader that wants to go, have a talk with Pastor Allison. Uh, you guys can assess that together, but that's coming up. It's an overnight event that uh, will happen out at Wilkeson, so it's pretty close by, but Elevate. By the way, if, uh, if the cost of Elevate is a challenge for your family, please get in touch with the church. We, we're family. That's why we give. Uh, we want to make sure your kids, your grandkids can go to Elevate. So that's coming up right around the corner. Uh, also, on the 17th and 18th of March, a little further down the road, is the Women's Conference. It'll be happening in Tacoma. Uh, you can get information about, <laughs> get information about that. Uh, through the church website, the guest center, scan the code on the chair in front of you, all those various ways, uh, stuff going down. The building project is still going forward. We're just waiting for the city to cross those last T's and dot that I's. I know you've heard me say that a thousand times. We'll get used to it because I'm going to keep saying it until it happens. We're, 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 right, we're right there. So anyway, good stuff. One last thing. Uh, today is a special day in the life of our, kind of the annual life of our church. This is Compassion Sunday. And what we do on this day is invite you to consider becoming involved in sponsoring a child in the third world. Uh, for about $38 a month, you can make all the difference in um, the poorest parts of our world. Uh, Compassion International, they have a table in the foyer. Uh, tried and true, been around for 70 years, work all around the world. Powerful ministry. Your $38 a month puts uh, a school, a church, and a feeding station in the, in the village. It's amazing stuff. You stay in touch with the kids. So on Rhonda and I have been doing this since 1985. We always have three kids on our fridge. One grows up and graduates. We bring another one in. One of the great joys of our life. So you could stop by the table if you'd like after service today and, and adopt a child today. You could actually pick a child out and adopt them and correspond with them. It's fun stuff. Not only Compassion International, huge. Uh, there's a, a, a child sponsorship agency that began right here in Edomclaw, right out of MRCC, and that's called Mercy Reigns. They have a table as well. They work only in Uganda right now, much smaller. But uh, Larry and Charlotte Travis lead that ministry, our deacon in our church, and beautiful, powerful ministry. Those kids are out there as well. So you can stop by the guest center as the Lord leads you, and uh, it will be hard to walk away from the table after you look at the kids, so just fair warning. Uh, but you go home always um, enjoying it, so good stuff. Grab your Bible, if you would, friends, please, and open it to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 4. You remember we said at the beginning of this year that we are going to take a road trip with Jesus all the way through Luke's gospel, challenge ourselves to have an attention span for the year. And, and then what we're going to do is get to know the real Jesus authentically, uh, page by page, verse by verse, moment by moment through his life. He was the one who warned us that there's a lot of fake Jesus out there. Apostle Paul said the same thing. And, and we want to be able to tell the difference. And the only way we can do that is by getting to know the real one. So we're spending this whole year walking through Luke's gospel together and taking our time and doing that. And this morning, we're in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14 and going down through verse 30. And, and let me begin by saying this. Have you ever been really unpopular? Go ahead, you know, right? Do you know what it feels like to be really unpopular? I've been dressed head to toe in Oregon Ducks gear standing in the middle of Husky Stadium. I know what it's like to be unpopular, right? Um, I've been the one saying, hey, it's bedtime, everybody's got to go to bed, we're done, oh, you know. 
Do you remember what it feels like to be unpopular? We've all been there. I remember walking into what I thought was a small group meeting when I was in Bible college. A group of people sitting in a circle, a whiteboard. I thought, well, they're having a Bible study. And I walked in and said, hey, guys, what's this, an Amway meeting? And yeah, it actually was an Amway meeting. And so I was not very popular <laughs> in that moment. Do you remember what that feels like? Sometimes, though, being unpopular is the only way to be good. It's the only way to do the right thing. I remember when I worked in the emergency room, and, and sometimes we'd have a, a, a small child come in with a, a significant injury, and we'd have to suture that child's uh, wound. We'd have to sew them up. And oh my goodness, not very many kids are interested in having you do that, in case you didn't know. And what we would sometimes have to do is you just got to grab that kid and lay on him and hold him down and force him to be still so that you can help him. And man, you want to talk about screaming bloody murder. You haven't heard a scream until you've heard a four-year-old girl let you know she doesn't want you to suture her. You know, and I remember when those times would happen, we'd always say, hey, mom, dad, we really need you to help us out here because we can hold him down, but gosh, it's better if you do. And, you know, most of the time, mom and dad would, but sometimes, I'm just going to be transparent and carnal in front of you, sometimes there'd be these loser parents that wouldn't be willing to do it. And they'd say, no, we can't, we can't hold our kid down. I'm like, i got to help your kid. No, we can't do that. you got to do it. Okay, okay, we'll do it for you. But, man, I hope someday you cowboy up and grow a spine because this is part of parenting, right? And, you know, the kid's not happy with me either. <laughs> But you know you got to do it. And there's no other way to be good than to be unpopular. And the reason I share that with us this morning is that we're going to see Jesus go from being wildly popular to being wildly unpopular right here at the beginning of his mission. And that's going to happen a few times in his life. But here's the first one. And it happens for a very important reason. If we want to know Jesus, if we want to know God, Revealed in the Son of God, the Word become flesh. We need to understand what is happening in this moment here. So Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. Here's what the Bible says. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Remember last week he went out into the desert, wrestled with temptation, said, hey, my appetites don't rule me. Life's about more than that. Had that battle with the devil. And then he comes back from the desert. The Scripture says he returned in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Hey, there's a new celebrity on the scene. There's a new personality emerging, a new influencer gaining a million followers. And he became popular because he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. The guy was good to listen to. He knew what he was talking about. He cared about the people he was talking to. And Jesus, as he began his ministry, became immensely popular. It's fun to be popular. If you've ever been popular as opposed to unpopular, you know the feeling. It's like, hey, this is good. I could, I could go with this. It's fun to, to feel good like that. And, and Jesus knew the Bible so well. Remember, we learned that from the age of 12, he took it seriously. He knew the Bible so well that he delighted people with his understanding. And he pointed out that the gospel is good news, that the fundamental message of God is of his grace and his offer of eternal life and, and his blessing and his love. And it's, it's a fundamentally outstanding, awesome message. And Jesus was sharing that. People were like, yeah, it's good to be us. 
And Jesus, you're amazing. We love what you're saying. We love what you're doing. And, and church, let's, let's understand that the fundamental uh, attitude of the Christian is one of celebration. <laughs> We've been given something we didn't deserve. <laughs> We've been blessed by God with a gift beyond imagining. And, and we celebrate that. When we come together, that's our fundamental default. It's not to prove something. It's to go, wow. When we couldn't prove anything, God gave us everything. Jesus is experiencing that kind of vibe right here at the beginning. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Israel, when they were returning to God, they thought, oh, it's all about repenting, and that's an element. But uh, Nehemiah said to him, um, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's celebrate. This is a celebration of God's grace. But sometimes, sometimes, we love to celebrate when we receive grace, but we're less happy when certain other people do. And that's actually what's about to come up. Look at verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, went back to his hometown. The neighbors who'd known him all his life, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles, the friends, the teachers, the people he had been in business with as he helped his dad's business. He went back to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Throughout Jesus' life, church was a priority for him. He understood that one of the Ten Commandments says come together every seven days as the people of God in worship. And so that was his rhythm. That was his custom. He came to the synagogue and he stood up to read. That day, as we're going to see, he was the guest teacher in his hometown. But before we move to that and hear what he said and what his message was that morning, first of all, grasp deeply that, that Jesus loves church. He doesn't love church because it's always perfect or it's always great. He loves it because he knows there is a unique experience of God that happens when we come together. And that's true for us when we're introverts like me. And that's true for us when we're extroverts as well. It's not that God isn't encountered in other ways because he is. But there's a special reality when we come together. And this goes really deep, friends. You know, the Ten Commandments I just mentioned talk about coming together every seven days, but the first two commandments are often not well understood by people, and they're connected to this idea. The first commandment says, you have no other God before me. In other words, I'm the one. Listen to me before you listen to anybody else. The second commandment, it's funny, I'll ask people sometimes, what's the second commandment? Most people can't remember. <laughs> if that's you, don't feel bad. I'm going to help you. The second commandment was, you shall make no graven image. Don't make any image of me. Don't make any picture of me and then worship it. That was common then and is common to this day in lots of religions to make an image, to make a, a visualization of God and to put it up there. In those days, you know, birds, eagles, bulls, bears, all kinds of things they put up as images of God. The second commandment says that the people of God, Israel then, Christians now, the people of God are not to make an image and there's one reason why. And that's this, gang. Check this out. Israel was forbidden to make an image because Israel was supposed to be the image. The communal life of Israel together, the way they lived with each other and loved one another, that was meant to be the image that they presented to the world. The other religions in Israel's day did not understand why Israel didn't have an image. In fact, Israel got a reputation as being godless because they didn't have an image. They said, how can you worship? You don't have an image. They said, no, God is more than that. And in fact, the second commandment 
teaches us that we are the image. That's why in the Christian faith, there's a doctrine that we sometimes struggle with, but is absolutely central and crucial, and that's the doctrine of the Trinity. The Christian faith teaches that God is one God and three persons. Not three gods, <laughs> one God and three persons. You say, oh, okay, you're making my head hurt. I know, God should make your head hurt. He's God. But the significance of it is that God is fundamentally communal. Just meditate on that for a little bit. Knowing that, Jesus made it his habit to go to church. Even, in fact, when church was messed up. Over in Matthew 23, he says, I know the Pharisees and the temple teachers are a bunch of knuckleheads, but you've got to go anyway because it's so important to come together. And he said, I'm going to go too, even though I know they're not perfect. It's an amazing thing to consider. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 puts it this way. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, we reflect his glory as a people. We become the image. Well, Jesus knows that. And so he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom, and he is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. You see that in verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. This is chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, if you want to look it up. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I have a purpose, I have a mission, and it's to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, God is coming to meet and rescue and redeem those who are in a mess, those who are overcome by their own bad financial decisions such that they are in poverty, those who are wrestling with freedom because prison isn't just a place with walls. Sometimes prison is what's going on inside of us, addictions, appetites that rule us. We talked about that in the past. To proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. Yes, physically, Jesus healed the blind, but there's an even greater blindness that afflicts the spirit, the heart. Jesus says, God has come to release the oppressed, proclaim sight for the blind. And then he uses a technical phrase that we're going to break down for just a second. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, hang on a second and grasp what Jesus is doing in this moment. He chose this passage. He's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, 60-some chapters. He picks chapter 61. He picks these two verses, and he reads them. Jesus knew his Bible. He started learning at age 12. The more we know ours, the more we'll understand and perceive and experience God. This is a living word, and it is through his word that we perceive him. Think of it this way. If you're learning a foreign language, the more words you have, the more you understand right? The more French you have, the more you understand what's being said around you if you're in France, and so on and so forth. In the same way, the more you know your Bible, the more you hear and perceive what God's saying and doing. And you're not because you have a bigger vocabulary. Jesus got a big one. He picks this passage. And then he says, I'm not only here to, you know, have Sabbath worship services. I'm here to tell you that God is seeking lost, messed up, broken, struggling people. That's what God's about. Now, He's going to piggyback off of that in a moment. But understand that the gospel is for those who don't need it. That, that's the great mystery of grace. It appeals most to those who need it. Sometimes we get to the point where we think we don't need it, and then we aren't paying attention. Jesus says, 
God seeks those who know they need him. On another occasion in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus put it this way, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And when he said that, again, quoting Old Testament prophet Hosea, he was challenging people to say, so are you healthy or are you sick? Sick people say, you know what, I need help. Sometimes healthy people say, you know what, I don't. Jesus wants to call attention in the moment that God is seeking sick people. He wants to rescue them. He wants to redeem them. If you're struggling this morning, God's seeking you. He's seeking you. More on that in a moment. But this whole idea crescendos with the last line that he reads. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, let me give you a little background here. Um, that phrase is a technical one with a history. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 25, you read the first 10 verses there, and God is setting up Israel as a nation in the beginning. And he created this thing called the year of the Lord's favor. Israel was supposed to operate economically in a specific way. When Israel came into the promised land, God gave everybody a plot of land. You got land, you got land, you got land, you can farm, this is your home, you can ranch, whatever you do, this is your place. And he gave everybody land, every clan. What then was supposed to happen, it never really did, but God's plan in Leviticus 25 was that if, if, if things got bad for you and hard for you and you had to sell your property and you lost your home, you could only lose it for a while. Because every 49 years, every seven times seven years, there would be something called the year of the Lord's favor. And trumpets, meaning grace, trumpets would be sounded in Israel. And everybody got back the land they'd sold, bought, lost, or whatever. It was all returned to you. You got a reset. You got a second chance. Everything was given back to you. God built into his community this social welfare net. Because you knew that people make bad decisions sometimes. And he didn't erase the consequences of bad decisions. You know, if you lost your place, you might be out for 48 years. <laughs> but if you lost it in the middle, you'd only be out for X years. And he even goes so far as to say, so, hey, if you get in a place where you need to sell or lease or lose control over your property, whoever buys it from you, it should only pay you according to the number of years left until the Jubilee. It's a picture of God's grace. In the year of the Lord's favor, imagine how it felt if you'd lost everything and then you knew that in March a trumpet was going to sound and you got it all back and you got to start over again. Wow, that would be awesome. And Jesus says, I've come to proclaim that. God's offering anybody and everybody a second chance. And in a moment, he's going to sit down and say, today this is scripture is fulfilled. In other words, my coming is about the year of the Lord's favor, is about jubilee. It's a beautiful thing. God built grace into his community. Imagine the feeling when all your mistakes were erased, you got everything back, you got to start over again. The Bible says he rolled up the scroll, verse 20, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Talk about good news. The people understood what he was saying. <gasps> it's Jubilee. Wow, awesome. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They liked what they were hearing. Jesus' popularity goes to a new high. Because the truth is, you know, deep down, we all love the idea of second chances. And God offers them third and fourth and fifth chances. But there's another truth that goes along with it, and that is that we sometimes don't like who he offers second chances to. Sometimes he offers second chances to people that we don't think should be offered them. Sometimes we wrestle with his grace when it's given to people we don't think 
deserve it, even though grace by its very nature is a thing not deserved. All spoke well of him and and were amazed at the gracious words that came from lips. Remind me of what C.S. Lewis said. He said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Somebody say amen, (laughs) right? And it feels a little different sometimes. And Jesus, though, doesn't end there. He brings that good news. Oh, man, is that good news. Then the scripture says that he sat down, and when a teacher sat down in that context, that meant he was going to teach. When he sat down, he said something that didn't come out nearly as popular. Verse 23. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Jesus speaking to the people, speaking to his hometown. He says, surely you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. In other words, we know you're popular. You're a celebrity. Do more popular stuff here. We want to be part of it. We want to see you be the golden boy. And then he said, I tell you the truth, no prophet, no real prophet is accepted in his hometown. And suddenly the expressions started to change in the room. What was he, who does he think he is to lecture us? We watched him grow up. He said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three years and there was a severe famine in the land. Yet Elijah, their favorite prophet, the most popular prophet in Israel, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. She was not sent to Israel, but to non-Israelites. She was sent to the part of the land that would become Samaria and the Samaritans, you know, those lowlifes, those bad guys. Jesus says Elijah was sent to her, a widow in Zarephath. And he says there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only name in the Syrian. In other words, God went outside of Israel to the people who were Israel's enemies and healed that general of an opposing army. Now, what Jesus is saying, his audience immediately understood. And he's saying two things. First of all, he's saying this. He's calling out their fixation on miracles and spectacles. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did elsewhere. Do, do some more stuff for us to watch. It's cool to be entertained by spectacle. Listen, friends, miracles are real. They happen. Signs and wonders are powerful, but they're called signs because they point to something else. There's always something more important that they point to. And Jesus' audience is saying, hey, we heard you do amazing stuff. We want to see you do amazing stuff. He said, life is about more than that. It's about what's going on in your heart. That's the first thing he says. When we're young and immature, we think we want popularity. Later on, we realize it's a poor substitute for a meaningful life. Good parents know that that being popular isn't the point, that we learn to live above our kids' affirmation because we know they're just kids. I remember, you know, when Isaiah was about four years old, he was so mad at me. I was telling him what he didn't want to hear. I was not popular in his heart. And he reached into his little four-year-old heart for the biggest, deepest insult he could come up with. And he looked me right in the face and he said, you, you big head. And, you know, I do have like a plus-size melon, but, you know, the, the, the point was, when he said that, I just laughed. I just, oh, come on, I say, that's hilarious, actually, but, you know, that's not what we're doing here, and I'm okay being unpopular because I'm telling you what's good for you, and I knew how to do that. Good parents know how to do that, but second, the other point that Jesus is making is that Israel's two favorite prof- prophets, catch this, friends, Israel's two favorite prophets went outside of Israel to heal 
and save people who weren't Israel. Now, that should have come as no surprise to them, but they had gotten to the place where they thought that God was all about Israel and that the Samaritans and the Syrians and all the others, the Babylonians and all the rest, they thought of them as enemies in a great culture war. And instead of understanding that God is not willing that any should perish, they had begun to believe, you know what, we gather in our fortress every week and we talk about what's good and right and true and we're just preserving ourselves here. And Jesus said, hey guys, do you understand that the God you're here to worship was always seeking lost people? Your two greatest prophets went outside Israel to seek lost people. And there's a little nuance in this passage, the rewards of Bible study. Uh, Jesus actually cuts off his quotation of Isaiah right before the passage says, so he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you read Isaiah 61 two, it goes on to say, and to proclaim the day of God's vengeance. And that passage was popular because the Jews were looking so much forward to the day of God's vengeance. Jesus cuts it off and only emphasizes God seeking to save lost people. And what is he saying to them? He's saying, hey, you're patting yourself on the back and forgetting that God's heart is to seek the lost. This isn't an isolated thing. You know, one of the most amazing books of the Old Testament is the book of the prophet Jonah. God comes to Jonah, he says, hey, you see Assyria over there? That is a land full of the wickedest, wicked people you could ever imagine. They're bad on every level. Their culture's sick. Their economy's sick. They're all about violence. They worship false gods. Jonah's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And God says, I want you to go tell them the good news of my grace. Jonah's like, what? God says, yeah, that's what I want you to do. That's your mission. I want you to go to Assyria. Jonah says, no, wrong. I'm not going there. They're bad guys. And so he runs the opposite direction. And the story of Jonah is the story of God saying, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and he tracks him down and he swallows him in a great fish and he takes him back and he vomits him up on the beaches of Assyria. Jonah's like, well, okay, I guess I got to do what I got to do. And with a decided lack of enthusiasm, Jonah starts going through Assyria saying, God calls you to repent. He wants to rescue you. He wants to save you. And the Bible says the whole nation from the king to the least repented and turned to God. Great story, right? Except that's not the end. At the end of the story, Jonah climbs up on a hill and goes, I knew you were going to be gracious, God. I hate those guys. I don't want them to be saved. Now you made me save them. Jesus is challenging that kind of spirit in this congregation. And the Holy Spirit of Jesus challenges us in the same way. He says, do you realize that what I'm about is seeking and saving all those people you think of as your enemies? Now, a lot of them won't be willing to be saved, but that's not your business, that's his. He says, our business is to seek and to save them. And he says to this crowd, hey, guess what? God doesn't think your country's better than the other countries. No, he doesn't actually. He doesn't think that so much that he sends his prophets to other countries <laughs> to reach and save those people. And oh my goodness, does the scenario change at this moment. Look at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Holy cow. If you don't think crowds are fickle, you haven't been paying attention to crowds. <laughs> If you don't think popularity comes and goes, you're not paying attention. As parents, we can't live seeking the popularity of our kids. As people, we can't live just to be popular. 
Because God is doing what's unpopular because sometimes you have to do that in order to be good. And he says to Israel, he says, hey, I want to save them all. Yeah, those Samaritans. Yeah, those Romans. You know, those depraved, corrupt Romans. Yeah, I want to save them. That's what I want to do. And the crowd said, well, we don't. And in a moment, they went from loving Jesus, after all, he's talking about grace, to not grace for them, and they want to kill him. There's an old Jewish proverb that uh, beautifully captures this idea. The, Israel's been delivered through the Red Sea, and they're in the, in the wilderness escaping slavery in Egypt. And, you know, remember the story, the Egyptian army chased them into the ocean, then the ocean drowns them all, and they're delivered, and they get to go uh, escape and find freedom. And, Afterwards, all the angels in heaven, according to the Jewish proverb, are celebrating and going, yay, God, we delivered us. And Gabriel says to Michael, hey, where's the father? We're having a party here. Israel got saved. Where's the father? Michael says, he's in the other room weeping for the Egyptians. See, that's the heart of God. He wants to save his enemies. He wants to save your enemies. And it's only when we understand that. We don't have control over that. We can't make people turn to God. But we are here to plant seeds, water seeds, sometimes help harvest seeds of the very people that we're tempted to think of as our enemies when really Jesus seeks to turn them into his friends. See, Jesus stopped quoting Isaiah the prophet right before the day of vengeance because he was saying God has come to seek the lost. There's a... Probably one of the greatest novels in history is Les Miserables uh, by Victor Hugo. And uh, many would argue it's one of the greatest musicals ever composed. Uh, uh, Rhonda and I and Pastor Weston and, and Stacy are going to get to go see Les Miserables in June. We're excited about it. But it's really a simple story, and it is a profoundly Christian story. It's a story of a prisoner named Jean Valjean who gets out of prison, not because he should, but because he's given grace. A policeman by the name of Inspector Javier starts to pursue him. He wants to put him back in prison. The Jean Valjean is given grace, and it completely changed his life. He spends the rest of his life saying thank you for that grace, serving the poor, caring for the sick. He becomes a, a paragon of virtue in his community under another name. And Inspector Javier, the whole time, though, is seeking him, hunting him. He says, nope, you haven't finished paying for your crimes. He's determined to, to bring this man back to prison, even though the whole point of prison has already happened in this man's life, which is to completely redeem him. And at the end of the story, we understand that Inspector Javier is really the one in prison. Jean Valjean is really the one who's been set free, because that's what grace does. Jesus is calling this synagogue audience to recognize that, to understand that. It's really the parable of the older brother and the prodigal is what Les Miserables is all about. Now, the end of the story is, verse 30, Jesus escaped this crowd that had turned on him. The Bible says he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Uh, the suggestion is that he eluded them perhaps by supernatural means. That's entirely possible, but not necessarily. The grammar provides that he may have merely taken advantage of the confusion and escaped. But either way, here's the point. God left the people who thought they were worshiping him. Why? Because they didn't want their enemies to be saved. Because like Jonah, they didn't want the Assyrians to be redeemed. I wonder if you've got a category of people that you really hope don't 
get the grace of God. Never have the year of the Lord's favor proclaimed to them. Maybe somebody at work, school, neighborhood. Jesus says, this is what I'm about. He says, I want you to know this is what God is about. Because when you're at your worst moment, you're glad he's about that. And now they're at their worst moment. And he wants them to know that he's offering his grace. When we let him remind us of who we're meant to be, we're changed for the better. Let me share a story, and then we're going to wrap up here this morning. One winter's night in 1935, Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York City, you may have heard that name, one of the more famous mayors, showed up at a night court in the poorest part of the city. And that night, he dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench. You, you could actually do that then. It was legal. The mayor is now the presiding judge of night court. And during the course of the proceedings, a tattered old woman charged with stealing bread from a street-side bakery was brought before him. He said, what do you have to say for yourself? She said, my daughter's husband has deserted her. She's sick and her children are starving. I stole the bread because I didn't have any money and I, I couldn't let my grandchildren starve. So Mayor LaGuardia turned to the shopkeeper and he said, well, knowing the situation, would you be willing to drop the charges? He said, no. He said, Your Honor, you have to understand, we live in a dangerous neighborhood. A standard has to be kept. A standard has to be set. She has to be punished or chaos will follow. LaGuardia sighed deeply and then he turned to the old woman and said, he's right. I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. So your punishment is 10 days in jail and a $10 fine. $10, 1935, so it's a different context. However, having pronounced the sentence, LaGuardia reached into his pocket, took out a $10 bill, threw it into his hat, and gave these famous words, here's your $10 fine, which I now remit, and furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a grandma has to steal bread so her grandchildren don't starve. And the bailiff went around and collected 50 cents from every person in the room. The following day, the New York Times reported that $47.50 were turned over to a bewildered grandmother who had stolen a loaf of bread so she could feed her starving grandchildren. Making enforced donations were a red-faced storekeeper, more than 70 petty criminals, and several New York policemen, and the mayor himself. And then the story ends. The reporter wisely tagged to the end of it. Most agreed they felt good about being fined that night. Yeah. See, because when we discover God's grace, and we not only receive it, but give it, we find our best selves. People walked home from that night court with smiles on their faces because grace had been given. And that's what God loves, and that's what God seeks, and that's what Jesus was challenging that synagogue crowd about, and that's what he wants you and me to know deep in our hearts is that that's his heart. You know, when you're at your worst, when you have that moment of failure, when you're exposed, when the truth comes out, when the reality comes crashing in on you, <laughs> this is good news. God is gracious. But then sometimes we forget it and we're unwilling to share it with anyone else. And Jesus says, really all grace asks is that you share it with somebody else. Really, all grace demands is that you give it away. I wonder if this morning you've gotten so caught up in who's wrong and who's right that you've forgotten 
that Jesus comes to offer a gospel of grace. You know, at the end of the day, when it's all is said and done, he'll sort out the good from the bad. You don't have to worry about that. What we're called to do is to understand his heart. I wonder if there's somebody at work you need to pray for. I wonder if there's an enemy in your neighborhood or at your school that you need to pray for. You need to understand that, that Jesus really wants to save them. You can't pull that off on your own, but maybe you can plant a seed or water a seed. I had a conversation with a man in our church this last week. He was so excited. He told me about how he had been getting to know a, a parent on his daughter's soccer team for the last two years, and they've become friends over time, even though he's a serious believer and the other man is definitely not. But over the last two years, their relationship has grown and grown and grown. And finally, last week, this man uh, standing on the side of the soccer field began to say, you know what, I'm kind of at my wit's end. You know, I'm in a crisis here. I need God. My friend said, well, you know, that's what I've been telling you all along. We can pray right now. You can receive Jesus as Savior. Would you like to do that? The guy said, yeah. So right there by the soccer field, they did. Now my friend is discipling him walking him through learning about God. <laughs> That's the ball game, guys. That's the ball game. If you're here wrestling with failure, God is seeking you. And if you know someone who's wrestling with failure, if you have an enemy who's wrestling with your failure, good news is Jesus is seeking him. You can start by praying for him, and then you just never know where that's going to lead. I'm warning you, it gets crazy in the best way. You'll go home from night court smiling, and that's what the Father seeks. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes with me. God, we thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, we thank you for your heart. What a beautiful picture of your heart. God, help us not to be the people who <laughs> think we know what we want, all our enemies to be smashed, when what we really want what you really want is to redeem them. So God, open our eyes, open our hearts to those around us so we could follow you. Thank you for being the God who seeks us when we need grace. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Yeah. Oh, man, the more we get to know him, the more we get to know him, the more we fall in love with who he is. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love them. Have a great afternoon, church. I love you. <laughs>